Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing Chapter 21, Lord Asriel's Welcome, Chapter 22, Betrayal, and Chapter 23, The Bridge to the Stars. With chapter 21, we have Lyra and Roger get a bear-shaped ride to where Lord Azrael is being kept. When they arrive, Lord Azrael is very disturbed to see Lyra and basically just tells her to go away until he also sees Roger. And then he is polite and invites both children inside and is very welcoming. Roger and Lyra have a hot bath to warm up and Roger mentions that he is scared of Lord Azrael and nervous about what's going to happen. Lyra offers to ask the alethiometer, but Roger doesn't want to know too much about his own future. Afterwards, Lyra and Lord Azrael have a conversation. Lyra tells him all that's happened and that she knows he is her father. She asks him what dust is and he says it is what makes the alethiometer work. He goes on to explain how it was discovered and how the church wanted to bury it but couldn't, and so decided that it was original sin. This gave Mrs. Coulter an opportunity <laughs> to get power and money and influence by saying she would take charge of researching it and the correlation between a demon settling at puberty and that being the same time that dust starts to be attracted to a person. Lord Azrael also mentions that the General Oblation Board missed that when you separate a person from their demon, a large amount of energy is expelled. Lyra then asks him what he is after. Azrael wants to open the door to the other world because it is where dust comes from. He wants to find the source, but needs a strong burst of energy in order to open the doorway. Azrael also says he wants to find the source of dust and destroy it. In chapter 22, Lyra is awoken from her sleep by Lord Azrael's servant and told that Azrael has taken all his equipment and Roger on a sled and gone off. Lyra puts two and two together from the last chapter and realizes that Azrael is going to separate Roger and his demon to get the energy to open the doorway. Lyra immediately calls for Yorick, who is asleep outside, and they and some other bears chase after Lord Azrael. Along the way, they're attacked by witches and a zeppelin carrying Mrs. Coulter and her lackeys. The other bears stay to fight, and Lyra, Pan, and York continue chasing after Asriel. Eventually, they come across a chasm with a bridge of compacted snow, so Lyra can get across, but York cannot. The bridge collapses behind her. And then in chapter 23, Lyra reaches where Asriel and Roger are. There's a struggle, but Asriel succeeds in separating Roger and his demon and opening the doorway between worlds. Roger dies from the shock of it. Mrs. Coulter shows up and Asriel tries to convince her to forget the church and come with him. He says he is going to find the source of dust and stifle it and she should come work with him. 
Mrs. Coulter ultimately says no. Azrael goes up into the other world and Mrs. Coulter leaves. Lyra is left where neither of them could see her, holding Roger's body. Pan points out that if all these evil people think dust is bad and want it gone, then it must be good and they should go find it. Lyra agrees, so they leave Roger's body and walk into the other world. Book over. I think traditionally the phrase is the end. (laughs) I like mine better. (laughs) That'd be great if it just said book over in the actual text. (laughs) Yeah. Book yeah. out. Yeah, book out. New plan if I ever write a work of fiction, which I probably won't. In the audiobook, because there's a full <laughs> cast, you just suddenly start getting this like list of a million people. It's like, oh shit, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's the end of the book and here's six more yeah. minutes. Like, whoa. Uh so favorite parts. Uh we've put me at the top, so I'll start. My probably my favorite bit is so the whole conversation that Lyra and Azrael have together is fantastic because we haven't seen them together since the beginning of the book. And for so much of the book, it's a, Lyra's been thinking that she has to get to Azrael. And now here they are and they sit down. And as far as we know, at this point, they just sort of lay everything out. And I do enjoy when that type of thing happens. And I love how Azrael, when he, he speaks matter-of-factly, like, I don't know how to describe this, but everybody that I've ever talked to about these books loves how good of a liar Lyra and Mrs. Coulter are and how intrinsic that is to who they are. But like when you really examine what Azrael's saying, I think he's the best liar because everybody just believes him. But I don't think any of what he said here was true. I completely and, agree mm. with you. And that's actually something that I wanted to discuss, especially in light of um, the question that I brought up before. I think it was last episode, uh, maybe the one before about um, what Serafina Pekola said about them wanting the same thing. Yeah. And how, like, in this chapter, it's definitely at least presented textually like they do kind of want the same thing. But I get the impression that he was completely just lying to try and get Mrs. Coulter to come with him. I don't think he really wants to destroy dust. I think he's he just wanted to get to the other world. Yeah. So my favorite line in their whole conversation was, Somewhere out there is the origin of all the dust, all the death, the sin, the misery, the destructiveness in the world. Human beings can't see anything without wanting to destroy it, Lyra. That's original sin, and I'm going to destroy it. Death is going to die. So I love that he says human beings can't see anything without wanting to destroy it, and then right away says, and I'm going to destroy it. (laughs) And then he has this really impassioned speech about it. But then, like, directly after this whole, I'm going to change the world, watch me, he goes and murders a child. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. The greater good. Yeah. So I, I really love all that interesting character stuff that we get from Ezreal. Yeah, I just, I I guess uh, I am a victim of the patriarchy. He's, I just believe everything that he's saying. Like, I've never questioned. I was like, of course, it's a man speaking the truth. That's what we do, <laughs> right? Isn't I don't know. Like, I, I literally did not think of this until I saw it in the doc. Like, maybe all of this is not correct. Like, I, I don't, I guess that I, I'm suspicious of his ability to apprehend reality. Like, I, I thought that he believed this was true, not necessarily that it is, like, objectively right. true. Um, But the idea that, like, he does know more than he's letting on is totally consistent with his character and just completely, like, he fooled me. I fell for it. So, given how skeptical he seems of the church, both in terms of like their motives and their methods throughout the whole book, 
it seems weird to me that he would actually be obsessed with destroying original sin in the same way that the church was. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, okay. it does. No, it does. And yeah. it's an interesting... Well, his method is different. But, it's an interesting yeah. point to bring up because at this point in the story, you could argue that no matter what quote-unquote side you're on, original sin is objectively bad. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Like, they, they've both decided... It's exactly what Pan says. They've both decided, both sides agree that, like, dust is bad. Like, that's the thing they agree on, and maybe they're wrong about that is the thing that you know the ultimate conclusion of the book i think is like her ability to question things based on her experience mm-hmm. after all of this that like maybe the, like unlike me lyra's like maybe they're wrong <laughs> but even even it's very in her subconscious because it's pan that brings it up it's not lyra who's like oh they must all be assholes and wrong and i'm going to prove them right or wrong it's pan who says you know well, if they all think this, then we should prove them wrong. It's, you know, and I always think when Pan comes up with an idea that it's kind of from Lyra's subconscious, although that that might not be true. That's just how I think of it. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with yeah, that. It's, yeah, it's interesting. And I feel like it kind of relates to a lot of the the like political theory things um, that people are thinking about these days about like horseshoe theory, right? Where kind of like if you go mm. far enough left and far enough right, you kind of end up back in the same place uh, of like authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like it's actually in the middle of the spectrum that's like the most different. But then there's also kind of like the fallacy of centrism and and how if you spend your whole all if you spend all of your political energy trying just to pick the most reasonable or like most middle position between the far right and the far left, you'll also just be like, land on something that's meaningless philosophically well it would be like the status quo like i i think the horseshoe here is like asriel and coulter and then like it's the other the non-status quo because they both uphold the status quo in a way but the non-status quo is Mm -hmm. lyra's position where she's like no you're you're wrong you're fundamentally misunderstanding which is interesting because i feel like in our world, in the current political situation, it's actually the opposite. It's like the people in the m- middle are wanting the status quo. Anyway, sorry. This is like an imperfect analogy that I'm coming up with on the fly. <laughs> so maybe I'll just stop. It's okay. Um, I really liked in, like, my favorite part is basically like a quote. When So I listen to these uh, on audiobook and usually um, when I'm working. And when I came back across this part this time, uh, I just burst into tears because um, I actually think like this is the emotional core of the entire novel. Um, like what it's really, really about. It's not like necessarily, I you know, like this political stuff is a part of it and the religious stuff. It's I mean, it's all there. But for me, like and I think for the audience that it's targeted at with it being a, a young adult book, I think this is about the experience of being a child and the way that you're treated by the adult world. And so this quote here just like did me in. I'm trying to remember. I think this is right after the bridge collapses and uh, Lyra just like feels like she can't go on as she's about to get into the final confrontation. And she says, uh, why do they do these things? Children, Pan, why do they all hate children so much that they want to tear them apart like this? Why do they do it? 
Like that is literally what the book is about. Mrs. Coulter is literally tearing children apart, you know, with, in terms of tearing their demons apart because really the demon is them. And, uh, the way that Lord Asriel just wants her to be obedient or out of the way, you know, like put away and how disposable Lyra is to all these people in her life that she's supposed to be important to. Like the master of Jordan college, like says, you know, I, I have to let her go because of this prophecy. And like, nobody comes after her or anything or like the amount of help that they give. I don't know. Like the, the, the whole world is like brutal to children in this world. And I feel like that is a very real thing that children experience that the world just wants you to be obedient and like a silent pet when you're a child or that you should be a perfect reflection of the adults around you who are invested in your future uh, or like you're a possession or something. You're not a person when you're a child in our culture and the book like reflects it so beautifully and and just like destroyed all my defenses i think you're completely on the mark with that and actually when i got to this part of the chapter i was absolutely thinking of you and kind of like all the discussions that we've had about you know your experiences with like emotional and physical abuse and stuff and yeah i think you're you're spot on um i my reaction to this bit was because i think just before just after this lyra has her why is this us moment? And I sort of just thought of it as it being her, mm. her Frodo. Why did the ring come to me moment? Yeah, no, I agree. It it definitely echoes that. Yeah. I think it really does. You got it like that. You that existential moment of like, why, why? And you got to find your reason why you can't like have you can't just be dragged through yeah, it. Exactly. You have to pick yourself up. I like that. You have to find your reason why. That's a good way to put it. Well, that's what the postmoderns believe. We know that you're just fated to do the things you're <laughs> right. supposed to do, and you have no Your choice. Teleological purpose. Yep. That's right. No choice. So I wanted to go last today because I picked literally the last line of the book uh, as my favorite part. Um, <laughs> and so the last line is, so Lyra and her demon turned away from the world they were born in and looked toward the sun and walked into the sky. Um, and I just thought that it was like really simple, but still beautifully written um, and that it was pretty much the perfect way to end this story while also kind of like leading into what comes next. It's, I think, a beautiful example of something that's like a game changer, but not really a cliffhanger. Like it makes you want to read the next book and you're so excited to find out what happens to Lyra and Pan after this. But also it it's not, yeah, it's not narratively cheap or, you know, like leaving you um, in the middle of the story in some way. I also like it because a lot of the times cliffhangers make me incredibly angry because they are not because I hate them in, in general, but because they're just done lazily. Like I've definitely read books that I really liked and then they were the first in a series. So when we got to the end, it just stopped in the middle of the action. Like it didn't it didn't have. Mm -hmm. any sort of conclusion it just stopped i was like well fuck you too <laughs> you know like <laughs> what like i don't even if it is a series you still have to come to a if not plot an emotional conclusion you know you still have to write a full book yeah like if this had stopped when they were shooting at the bears and she's like getting to the bridge and all yeah, that stuff exactly. and then it was like 
And then who knows? You'd be like, or what? Like that, is, that almost would be literally super where the movie stopped. Right. Yeah. Uh, Wait, really? When did the movie stop? I don't even remember. So it's kind of switched around because they do the bears and then they go to Bullvanger. Oh. And then as she's like on her way to see Asriel again, it stops. Right. Yeah. So we don't even get anything about like the final fate of Roger because they didn't want to end on this note, right? Like this is yeah, dark. But- this ending is dark. And they were like, but, no but, bummer but they, ending. They filmed it because it was in the trailer, but the um, studio wouldn't let them end on it. Ugh, cheap. Yeah, that worked out for them. Good job. I'm sure all those people got promotions. They were like, we're definitely going to put this in the sequel. That's definitely going to get made because this movie's going to be super successful. <laughs> I honestly think at that point, the studio was just like, we're not going to do anymore. But um, even if they had, how would they have put this into the beginning of the, <laughs> like this is so an ending you know like how would they have made that happen it, it, but honestly the mind. they they like missed out on exactly what Anya is pointing out here is like the tremendous amount of energy that you get by like you know everybody walking through this portal into the sunlight and you don't know exactly what's going to happen but it's extremely exciting and like when people left the film, if they didn't read the book or whatever, you know, they would be like, uh, OK, I guess there's more that's going to happen. But like, I don't care, you know, as opposed to this ending where you're like, oh, my God, I just got punched in the gut. And now, like, it seems like something extremely cool is happening. What happens? I got to go buy the next book. You know, it like is the perfect kind of energy to end the story on. And they missed out on that. Uh, they missed out on a lot, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. The good news is, I know when uh, the TV series finished filming, to sort of mark the end of filming, they tweeted out that last line. So <gasps> yes. So I think that they have done it right. Oh, they better. Yeah, I have way more confidence in them. The amount of more confidence I have is not expressible by a number that is understood by human beings. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, equivalent to the number of universes in the multiverse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> More than infinity. <laughs> so I kind of, before we move on, I just kind of want to go back to what you said about this being like a really dark way to end a story. And like, do you think it works as a kid's book to to end in like child murder and Lyra's best friend getting killed? Ugh. I, I Yeah, I do. <laughs> I think people have a skewed idea of what kids books are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like what's appropriate for kids and and like the idea. So like part of what this book is, is like that, that idea of like children are like a thing that is not a person, you know? And, and there's like this whole cultural idea that you have to like protect kids from reality somehow, like, people don't die and everything turns out great. Like that's not really a healthy thing to teach a person that like, if you just try hard, you'll always make it and nothing bad ever happens. And like fundamentally changes your life and you never have to cope with anything really. Like if you just keep trying, it's all going to work out. Like that's not, you're not doing anybody a favor by telling them that story over and over again. And I don't know, this, this story is more realistic about, the way that, you know, you come to the conclusion about the way you see the world, I think, like through experience and through disappointment and tenacity. 
And I, I, I kind of think bringing that particular question up is the theme of the whole series, really. Yeah. Because, like, you could argue that cutting the demons away was them was like taking it very far, obviously, but protecting a child child's innocence, and that's not what children want. Mm-hmm. And it isn't good for them. Yeah, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about. On a completely like flip side response to that question, just if children's books in the nineties. Well, A, they were going through a big change because that's when this series and Harry Potter came out, mm-hmm. which just com- like, I don't think people who who have not worked in any arm of publishing really understand that Harry Potter completely changed publishing, like completely changed it. Like they split the New York Times list into different categories because Harry Potter would not get off of it. Like <laughs> and they were like this isn't fair for the grown-ups. Yeah, exactly. Like it And that's just like one thing that that it changed. So ch- children's books pre, you know, like uh whenever the first Harry Potter came, well, pre Harry Potter getting uh famous and and afterwards completely different things. If and if you think about what was popular at least as far as I know, um, before Harry Potter, there'd be like Roll Doll, mm-hmm. uh, sure, and Diana Wynne Jones, uh, all English people. <laughs> Almost every child children's book I read as a kid was written by an English person, and they did not sugarcoat a single damn thing. If anything, they were all about torturing children, which is why, uh, like uh, the Philosopher's Stone why Harry Potter's family treating him the way he does comes across as kind of funny. Right. Living you know, under not, the stairs yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. Because that, that is so Roald Dahl. That is, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is straight out of a Roald Dahl book. Yeah, and it like wasn't until... Matilda just yeah. getting shit on by everybody. Uh, yeah. James, James and the Giant Peach, when James goes yeah. to live with his aunt and they treat him like a slave. Like, that's, that's what Harry Potter... That's where it came from, that, that, that English children book tradition so this book is i mean it's very different than that but it is like english children's books never treated children or never coddled them Mm -hmm. you know so maybe it was always clear to give them a happy ending but they would never start off happy yeah that goes all the way back to like alice in wonderland and stuff which is like also very messed up yeah yeah that's a good point so yeah, anyways, I think we did sort of touch on to like the theme of the series there that children can do these things and that they should do these things and that growing up is normal. Despite what grown-ups want for you. Yeah. You know, it's literally what that book's about, I think. I think it's about the whole series too, not just this book. It's a theme that continues on. But shall we move on to problematic bits? That was my transition. It was super smooth. <clears throat> so there's like okay so when i first in episode zero talked about like the way that i read this book the first time was like i was trying to teach myself how to write and this book was like too good for that like it's not uh helpful and uh so i ran into that here uh at the end uh, in a bunch of ways honestly but one of them that really stuck out to me was at one point lord asriel like grabs a bible and starts to read from the book of genesis and um and of course, if you're going to read the Bible, unless he's reading it in Hebrew, uh, which would be super confusing, you're dealing with a translation. And and like 
he reads the King James version of the Bible, basically. I mean, there's some extra stuff in there about demons, which of course isn't in our version of the Bible. But like, so immediately in my head, I'm like, well, it can't be the King James version of the Bible because that doesn't jive with their history. But then I immediately ask myself a question when I notice a detail like this of like, well, how would you do it then if you were writing this? And there's really no choice. Like he has to go with the King James version of the Bible, I think. But doing that is like it compromises the world in a tiny way that doesn't matter to almost anybody. And it's like totally narratively the correct choice, but it's like a tiny world breaking thing because like the King James version of the Bible is highly influenced by the Reformation and they're like people jockeying for position on like, you know, we have to say it in this way because saying it that way supports this theological argument, blah, 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 blah. A lot of times you'll hear like in churches, especially Protestant churches, that like the King James version of the Bible is like a transcendent uh, version, like a translation of the Bible that is like compared to other English translations is far, far superior, like on a spiritual level. Uh, and that's because of like all of these tweaks when they translated it to support different theological ideas that were uh, important to the Protestants who translated it. Uh, so like that choice is the right choice, but it's also the wrong choice. So I understand why it breaks the world, but I don't quite understand why you're saying it was the right choice also. Like, is it just oh. because that's like the version that people are most familiar with hearing? And so it like evokes that like innate cultural response yeah. in us. Yeah, because earlier English translations would be like confusing to people. They would be like, where's the these and thous and therefores? Like people know these verses of the Bible, you know, the the Genesis story, they know those. And so to not use them would be a big mistake. I see. And you wouldn't want to go with the like masculine man Bible or like teeny, <laughs> teeny girl relationship Bible or all the like horrible branded Bibles that they sell in <laughs> modern Christiana whatever's. <laughs> I love those different versions of like Bible chicken soup for the soul version or something. Like, yeah. You know, the babysitter's Bible or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, like the older English translations would, they would just have different word choices and it would immediately kind of kick you out of the story and be like, wait a minute. And it would, again, it would be like narratively, it would keep that world kind of sealed to its own history, but it, but it would like, it would kick the reader out, and that's the wrong thing. And it, this choice kicks me out, but I'm the minority, you know, group mm -hmm. in this. That's like, wait a minute. I guess so, I'm the anyway, minority so th on on the other end of things because he could have completely made something up here, and I'd have bought it. <laughs> right, you wouldn't know. <laughs> I am I am ninety percent certain I've never touched a Bible. What? Yeah, not even that in like a hotel unlikely. room. I was actually just thinking about that maybe in a hotel room when I was a kid and we went on like road trips, but that's, that's it. So I don't, I have no idea what is written in one other than like cultural stuff that I have absorbed. So you actually don't know that like potentially if you touch the Bible, it could like burn your hand. You could burst into flames. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe if it was going to be someone, it would be me. <laughs> I mean, I have been in churches. Okay, um, and you're still intact. And I am still intact. The consecrated ground didn't get me. 
but <laughs> who knows? I, I should, I don't even know where to find a Bible, like in my life, you know, without going into a church and being like, yo, can I touch your Bible? <laughs> can I caress this book, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess a, li- a library? There are, you can read it for free on the internet. It's like it's yeah, but just but that's not the there. same as touching a Bible, I guess, and just to see if it burns me. You could touch the screen. That would be hmm, maybe that would be a different thing. <laughs> Kate, do you want to talk so, about Africa since you wrote it down? Sure. So the problematic thing that I found in this chapter is when Lord Asriel mentions that uh, Mrs. Coulter knows about African slaves called zombies, and it it is I, we've brought this up before about how when when we had the uh, bug, clockwork, demon, doohickey. Spybot is what I call spy it. Spybot, sure. <laughs> About how it was just magic from Africa and how that's just the laziest, stupid, like, very colonialist writing. You know, it's some of that stuff that we don't understand mm-hmm. that's going on over there. Yeah. And it's just bad. <laughs> it's just bad. And I kind of wanted to bring this up previously when we talked about it, um, but we were kind of running long, which and which is that, like, colonialist voodoo bullshit um you know like deepest darkest mysterious whatever but also it treats africa as like a single unit <laughs> yeah when it is like definitely not and you hear this all the time uh yes. from white people will they'll be like japan and france and africa and actually i think we did this in this podcast so i'm calling us out right now for that um you, when we were talking about it before? Yeah. <laughs> I had meant to brought, bring that up as a problem, but I think I just got so wrapped up in other things that I didn't. So I'm glad you brought it up now and, and called us out on that, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, Africa's a whole continent. It has, like, hundreds, if not thousands, of different peoples and cultures who are as different from each other as, you know... And genetically, they are literally more different from each other than, like, a French person and a Japanese person because everybody who descended from groups who migrated out of Africa came from like a very small population genetic bottleneck compared to everyone. Like most of humanity's genetic diversity is all contained within the African continent. Um, Despite the fact that people from outside the continent tend to view them as a single unit, which they absolutely are not. Um, I think there's actually a website uh, it's like www.africasnoticountry.com that's just <laughs> dedicated to documenting that phenomenon of like people not knowing what the fuck Africa is. And like people just like don't do that as much, obviously, with like Europe or Asia or. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, like, obviously, the racist bullshit is a big ass deal, obviously. But also it's just bad, lazy writing. And I would have expected more yeah. from Philip Pullman. Like, less racism yeah. and better writing. Yeah. And this will, this is not done, this stuff here, right? I can't remember. But I seem to have a memory of, like, zombie stuff is not, we're not done with this. Oh, done. Yeah, no, we're not done with that. Yeah. Absolutely. No, yeah. we're not done So with it's that. good to talk about it now. <laughs> and, like, so we can talk about it more later and be like, we recognize that this is not good. Yo, it's going to get worse. Yeah. I mean... That's that's a question. Is it going to get worse? I, uh, I mean, it's it, like, sorry, it definitely gets worse, but it's like evil people doing it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he's making it to that evil. Well, uh, we'll talk about it when we get there. Sorry. But I agree with everything you guys said, obviously. 
And then the last thing that I wanted to bring up, which I know we've been like harping on this the whole time, but I think Alan was the one who looked this up and that apparently John Fa is like a real historical person who's actually Roma. Oh. Yeah. When I, yeah, when I was making the show notes for the episode where we talked about gypsies, I I was just looking stuff up and it he's called Johnny Fa the king of the gypsies. He was like uh, you know, a Scottish Roma uh guy and he yeah i i put links to it in the show notes i'll include it with this episode too if people are interested in looking it up but it just makes that link between the you know the name of the people group and and the roma people like very clear like it's he's very clearly doing that yeah and honestly it like completely changes the way that i feel about it because i think it, on a surface level when you read the book you can see it as like an like an analog like they're just nomadic but not actually romani and then or roma mm -hmm. um it's both and then okay yeah but then like knowing that he specifically chose that name it's like oh no he's like actually like writing roma people and that's so problematic yeah do not like um i wanted to bring up we had uh, a listener on twitter uh kelly at glazeberg girl uh talking to us about this and I, I'm going to assume it was Alan who linked all these things. Oh, yeah. Um, this will show you she, how far behind we are on our, like, the gap yeah. <laughs> in recording. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, not to part the curtain. But anyways, <laughs> um, she was asking about if we'd read any opinions from actual Roma people uh, about any of this. And Alan did find and link a couple of articles. And I we should link that in our show notes, too, in case people are interested in learning about what their perspective is on just uh it wasn't too specific if i remember correctly but there was um yeah can you tldr it for us oh there wasn't much i i found like uh, uh one article basically that was like from a fantasy author um and she she rounded up a lot of authors in one sentence including pullman and basically said like these people treat us like a plot device they're sympathetic to us but we we are our culture. We are not people distinct of our like the culture is not a facet of their personality. They are the culture like John Fa is, you know, his Romanness. That is what he is. And so she was saying that that is not good enough, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it also like so to specifically write a story where like the Roma feature prominently and and that specifically they're having their children taken from them is kind of problematic. Like it works on one level because like if you step back, it makes sense that like if they were going to steal children, they would steal them from a group that like wasn't well respected and that didn't trust the police and that the police didn't care about. But also there's like an actual history of Roma people having their children taken by the state, like across Europe. <laughs> and so I'll see if I, I don't have anything like on hand right now, but I'll see if I can find some links to stuff where, where like, yeah, like basically the, the relationship between Roma people and like whatever the equivalent of like child protective services is not good because they just like go in and, and take people's children based on like, you know, preconceived notions of what is or isn't good parenting that are like completely culturally biased against them. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah. I'm, I like, I feel bad that it 
took us this long to like actually come around to the right perspective or what I think is the right perspective, but better late than never. <laughs> and if anybody else has read any articles on Roma characters in being included in fantasy from a Roman perspective or notes of any podcast or anything like that, please recommend us. Recommend to us. Don't, you know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> I think uh, Anya just summed that up pretty good that better late than never, I guess. And shall we move on to a science? I have a science thing to say this time. I'm so excited. <laughs> Again, with better late than never. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing like a pom-pom motion. But nobody, this is a podcast. And no oh, me too. It. Me too, actually. Okay, great. great, great. We're like pom poming synchronously, but separately. International pom pom routine. <laughs> oh, and if we were a podcast that did cute episode names, that might actually be it. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, there's like a very kind of like fundamental science error in the, the like world building of the book and what happens in the section and that is that like if you're thinking about the bond between a human and their demon as analogous to like a chemical or a a physical bond um which i think philip pullman is definitely invoking giving given the way that um he incorporates other aspects of science into the book Mm -hmm. um so in this book breaking the bond releases a tremendous amount of energy and that's not actually how bonds work it works the opposite way um so breaking a bond actually takes energy it absorbs energy and creating a bond is what is exothermic or releases energy Mm. interesting i guess i guess he had he had to switch that for plot reasons. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't really do it the other way. Like, it wouldn't work. It just kind of yeah. made me laugh a little bit, knowing what I do about chemistry. So, yeah, like, right, yes. uh, in order to break bonds, it has to absorb energy, and then it releases energy when bonds are made. Because otherwise, bonds would be unstable, right? Like, it has to be a lower energy state for the two things to be bonded together than to be separate. And that's why like when you're when you're doing chemical reactions to try and like break bonds, a lot of times you have to input heat. Right? Like when you're right. um you know, a Bunsen burner or whatever uh with a flask of things boiling. Hmm. So do you think that's why he puts the wire into like from the Aurora into the demon? That's what he does, right? Like I'm understanding that correctly. Is he like pulling the energy from the Aurora into the demon and then like boom, portal? Like that's well, how I, think, I read it. I think I think the idea in the text is, the other is that way? it's the other way around okay. that he's pulling the energy I've from the demon. I completely misunderstood this. Okay. Well, <laughs> actually no, Alan, I think you're right. I think he's kind of doing both at the same time, right? Because he is he's like plugging the Aurora into the demon and then using that to sever the bond, which then increases or releases even more energy, right? Because otherwise he could have just used the Aurora to open right. the, yeah. the portal, yeah. To open the portal itself. Maybe he's thinking of uh of splitting an atom or something. 
and then like but that's not yeah. the same at all because like what you're doing there is actually releasing a very strong uh energy that's inside the atom that like you're overcoming something that's like wants to explode but can't because of like its nature but once you overcome that you know once you break the nucleus it's like boom oh thank you boom good yeah i'm energy now but like that's not how people work like you don't like you don't break someone's mind and then explosion like that's not that's not how we i don't think that's how we work well i mean that's not the metaphor anyway but (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i think it is also important to remember that like this isn't this is also a fantasy book yeah 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 Yeah. like he he is trying to incorporate science but it's possible that he's trying to say it through science but that the bond between human and demon is actually like a mystical one Mm -hmm. and it's he's trying to relate it to science but it's actually something completely different happening when he separates them and that's why there's energy release yeah, maybe i i like this though i like that endothermic exothermic thing this is cool oh you know it's it's great to bring up i was just yeah, yeah. anyway <laughs> <laughs> um and then the other thing i wanted to say quickly about science is that i kind of like went down a wikipedia rabbit hole in terms of multiverse theory um and couldn't come up with anything like super short or pithy um (laughs) to respond to the discussion we had earlier um and i think you actually did a pretty good job of of summarizing everything so so great job (laughs) you have my seal of approval um but i I did find the whole thing really intriguing. And so I'm going to see if I can find an expert to talk with me about it. Um, and maybe we'll release an extra or something at some point. That's uh, just a Ooh. science episode all about multiverse stuff. Maybe uh, once we have a slightly better idea of what's actually going on uh, with yeah, how it's so presented in the universe. I, I will say um, alternate worlds are only going to, get bigger from here yeah yeah so maybe we'll wait kind of until um like end of book two or something i i would even say like book three is where it really takes off okay there's some there's some alternate world shit in book three (laughs) right i mean there's some stuff in book two but book three is where it goes crazy yeah because by book three is like you got it right you understand the rule all right here we go like we're at the top of the hill let's go exactly well, book three is kind of like, you understand the rules, right? Well, now we're going to fuck them up. <laughs> nice. I'm definitely looking forward to that. All right. Religion. Religion. Yeah. Um. There's not too much here. I mean, we get a lot of religion in these chapters, but I feel like it's both pretty self-explanatory and like I've tried to prepare the, you know, our listeners for what has been coming here. So we get original sin, which we talked about last time. So hopefully everybody remembers that you have no choices in your life uh, and that everything you do is bad no matter what no matter how good it is it's still bad and that's what original sin is uh, the only choice you have is whether or not you uh, will accept salvation and uh, if you do then that's really the only way that you get any choices and they'll only be within the context of the Christian reality so um, your good and bad choices will be like cultural basically and so that's original sin. I don't know if this makes me feel better or worse about the fact that I don't really read ahead. And so a lot of times I bring up things that like 
are being foreshadowed somewhat heavily and then it's like oh no they textually address that at the end and then you guys are just like uh anya we're just mm -hmm, yeah not talking about that now <laughs> like i was like what do you think dust is a metaphor for it's like well obviously there's a reason why you didn't put that question down because it's super obvious well they just... and you can't really talk about it without just yeah jumping ahead <laughs> i didn't want to tell you like no you that theory is dumb I, where are you getting that from? Like you were, you were right on target, and I was like, I don't know what to say. Uh, that sounds good, yeah, but yeah. So <laughs> that's like what he's been building to is this idea of original sin. I have to say that when I when I reread the book and it got to this point, I don't think I remembered the original sin thing, and I just laughed. Like when he was like, "It's original sin," and I'm like, "Oh man, are really? Like you think that dust is like destiny?" Um, like, it's just weird. Like all of you people are like, everything is destiny with you. You're like you, and I'm going right, to go. Kill all right. Destiny. All right. I think we're misunderstanding what he said. Well, like, yeah, he's saying like it, it makes you into a bad person. Like it gets on you and like changes you into a bad person. Right. Or, okay. Well, a, I don't necessarily think Asriel believes that he says that is what the church has decided it is. That's true. He does say that. Well, he says and like, I'm going to go kill it. And I'm like. This is right. Okay, but weird. you just said you just said original sin. Like he he's just saying things. Like when we started this, you just said, "Hey, you guys have no choice." Right. Like he's just saying it because it's the way to explain it, the way to talk about it, and we don't know that a single thing coming out of his mouth is what he believes. I have to say, like I really did buy it. Like I was in. I, he had. Yeah. Me. So, uh, I was skeptical. Uh, team team skeptic all the way. <laughs> team, I know what happened. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that just goes again. That just goes again to show that I have excellent intuition, not having yeah. any clue what's about to happen. <laughs> so, but but even even putting aside that I know what happens, like in, you know, a couple chapters ago, uh, when Lyra was talking to Lee and he brought up that maybe Azrael was lying about Grumman. Right, right. Yeah. And then like everybody just forgot about that. No, that's <laughs> that maybe oh my Azrael God. is lying his shit off, you know? <laughs> I don't know what that sentence was, but because he just wants to get what he wants. Yes, yeah. you're completely right. No, that's the way you do it. That's the way you write. You know, you uh, yeah. I, I think the same thing's going on here um, with Azrael in general, because we get him at the beginning of the book and we're like, whoa, this guy is like he wants to break a kid's arm. He's very rude to her. He's cold. And then we don't get him for the rest of the book. And he becomes this kind of like abstraction to Lyra and she builds him up into this person that he really isn't. But we're so yeah, we spend so much time with that idea that when we meet him again, we are just as like or at least I am just as shocked and disappointed by his behavior in these final chapters as Lyra is, which is like the perfect. That's the way to do it. That's the journey. Yeah. And I also just want to mention that like I don't think that they are saying that dust is original sin. I think they are saying, and this is just a personal interpretation, so much is never, even when you finish the books, so much is never like completely laid out about dust that you can interpret it different ways. Yeah. Um. I, I don't think he's saying that dust is original sin. I always thought they were saying humans have original sin, so dust is attracted to them. Or dust is attracted to them so it causes them to have no that doesn't work because then why would they cut the demons away and with the dust i don't know what it is 
You know, like, I don't think he knows what it is. I don't think any of them. Well, he lays out. I think he lays out here the theological position of the church based on scripture. He's he's he quotes the line there of like, you are from dust and to dust you will return. And like you are ruled over by dust. And so that is like the entire idea of original sin that like it's wrapped up with us. It's in charge of like your moral destiny and stuff. And so, like, the, from the church's point of view, like, great, we have, like, uh, what they're more excited about is that we have, like, physical confirmation of this thing that's in the Bible. Like, they have created an analog that I think all of us would agree, like, does not necessarily exist. They have misapprehended what this particle is or or what this mystical kind of uh, you know, dust is whatever it is. Mm-hmm. They've applied it to a, a theological idea or to a cherry picked um, scripture from Genesis and said, like, that's it. We know it. we got it um, because they're more interested in certainty and in reinforcing their ideas than they are in, like, discovering the truth based on, like, experience and evidence. No. Yeah, I agree. But I, it's so hard to really get into dust just because I have so many other things that I want to bring up. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I wasn't even, I was just reviewing the idea of original sin. No, yeah. No, I know, I know. Not saying that that's what it is. I'll, we can talk more about dust in a bit. Let's right. Okay. So my only point was that, um, so original sin that just has like in the, you know, in the concept of original sin in our world has this like, controls your moral destiny. But if you think about it, what that means is that the idea of innocence would also control your destiny. Because like I said, in order to make moral choices, you have to have a choice. There has to be a choice. So if the only thing that you can do is good things, if you were like totally, completely innocent uh, and you can only do good things, then that's your choices don't matter either. You'd be like a robot or something, you know, Um Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that you're doing good things like in any kind of moral sense. They don't have value because you haven't made the choice uh, between doing a bad thing and doing a good thing. And so in a sense, they, they like they want to cut away these demons in order to like, quote unquote, protect the children. And we were talking about this earlier, like protect this idea of children, which doesn't really exist and isn't healthy in any way. But if you even if you did that, we've already seen like what these people who have their demons cut away are like. They're like, you know, kind of robotic and without passion or curiosity or like human connection. They're just like unplugged in a way that um, would trap them from being fully human it, it it keeps you in a in a state that is not what we are and that would be like if adam and eve had stayed in eden forever like would they really be people like it i mean it would be great on a certain level but they wouldn't even understand how great it is so it's it's just like this immature desire to get to you know like the the paradise that you would earn after understanding what sin is and what choice is and all that stuff would be more meaningful than the kind of paradise that Adam and Eve were even in in the first place and i think the book like bears that out like i think the book is aware of that idea and is saying like innocence is not better than original sin like the conclusion that lyra comes to at the end of the book based on her experiences is more valuable than 
being told by Jordan college professors what's right and wrong or being told by anybody else what's right and wrong or being forced to make choices. That's like coming to her own choice based on everything that's happened to her is like the reward for all of everything she's done. So that's innocence in original sin. That's what I saw here. And the other small thing that I saw um, is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Have you guys heard this story before? Is that the one where God asks him to sacrifice his kid and he is about to, and then God is like, JK, I didn't mean it. It was a test. (laughs) Yes. But because you were willing to kill your kid, you passed it. Yeah, that's a story. Jeez, that's fucked. Well, that's a story that is often used um, to to be like, see how fucked Abrahamic religion is in exactly the kind of sardonic way that Anya is saying. But the reaction that you immediately had to it is like pretty uh, typical when when you read it in the Bible, because it's like he literally tells Abraham and, you know, we say Abrahamic face. Abraham is the root of this idea of having he's the first person in the Bible after humanity has gone on for a while that God speaks to and says, like, this is who I am. This is my nature. And Abraham believes in him, believes in one God instead of, you know, an idea of like the God of the sun or the earth or a mountain or something. It's just like one God. Right. Yeah. And then basically, like he tells Abraham, he says, um, you're such a good person that I want to like make a deal with you that I, I will make your life fabulous and I will um, I will make your descendants more numerous than like the stars in the sky um, if you like believe in me and learn from me and pass your teachings on to all of your children and Abraham's like great sounds good and then like he lives his life he like tells everybody about it Abraham's like a really good guy he's honest with everybody he's like a stand-up person and everybody's like cool yeah your religion sounds awesome he says, yeah, and I'm going to pass it on to all of my descendants. There'll be more of them than the stars in the sky. And then he's like, you know, he's like in his 20s when he when he says that. And then he's into his 30s, no kids, 40s, no kids, 50s, no kids, 60s, 70s, 80s. And finally, he has one kid um, with his, you know, him and his wife are like 80 something, 90 something. And so it's a miracle. Like, clearly, the child came from God, but it seems like not what the deal was, you know, more than the stars in the sky. And by that time, Abraham's become like a joke to people like, oh, he'll tell you about how many kids he's going to have. Like, look at this old codger. (laughs) He believes there's only one God who believes that. What an idiot. Uh, And then when he's just a little kid as his son, Isaac, God talks to Abraham again and says, I want you to take him up on the mountain and tie him up and put him on this rock. And then I want you to kill him. in you know as a sacrifice to me like a human sacrifice and abraham you know lets isaac know that that's what's going to happen and they go up there and he ties them up and then at the last minute uh an angel stops him and a ram comes out of the bushes and he says you know use the ram instead like you've proven yourself you and then the descendants of his son isaac are the are the people who become the hebrews and the jewish people and and all of that sort of the rest of the Bible and eventually Jesus, if you're Christian. And so like, this is an important moment in terms of Abraham proving himself and people, you know, that's very messed up. What they, what I think they don't understand about that story is that the context that it was in for the people who heard it at the time. And like 
the Hebrew people who were telling that story were were telling that story to each other during a time when their nation had been shattered by invaders and the Akkadians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all of whom practiced human sacrifice and who, through their imperial uh, expansion, part of the reason for the imperial expansion was because you didn't want to be human sacrificing your people. You'd want to be invading new territories, taking those people and sacrificing them to your gods for the prosperity of the empire. And not your like doing that to your own people makes you very unpopular with your people. And, and it gives a good reason for the people in your empire to expand. And so the Hebrew people were the people that got expanded upon. And so to them, to hear a story about a god who, when it comes to the moment of human sacrifice, says, no, stop. I value human life. I understand that this is your child. I will not take this from you. I'm a God of justice and love, and I control everything in the universe, and I don't ask this of you. That would be a story that would be restorative to the Hebrew people that were experiencing the sacrifice of their children, mothers, sisters, aunts, brothers, fathers, grandfathers, to the gods of you know, the people around them who hated them. I see. So like in the original context that the story was told, the key contrast was between like being sacrificed and not being sacrificed as opposed to the way that like modern readers tend to interpret it is is basically like God tricking him and pulling a gotcha. Yeah. And I think it's also that second interpretation is the interpretation that Pullman is taking because that is what happens with Asriel here. He goes up on the mountaintop and he's asking for that child that he needs. And then his child mm-hmm. shows up and he's like, no, not her, not her. That's my child. And then he sees the ram, the alternate sacrifice walk in behind her. And he's like, oh, cool. I can, I got this. It's all good now. And that's something we haven't talked about either. How they just sort of briefly mentioned that Ezreal just sort of asks the world for what he wants and then he generally gets it. Yeah, I, I figured like, that that's going to be explored later. So I'm not. I think I hope so. That's a weird power to have. Well, okay. I was a little bit confused about that because it's described in like a very literal fashion in that like he has a lot of power and is a skilled manipulator. So he literally asks people to bring him what he wants and then they literally just bring it to him. Yeah. But the delivering Lyra or delivering a child to sacrifice is on a very different level. And that did leave me a bit confused it's like prayer right or something it's supernatural it seems i I will say it's possible that the people in that world see the two very different things as the same thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but as a reader you would be like no that doesn't make sense and it's it's just interesting that he that asriel put out into the world i need a kid and a kid showed up right i also maybe this is a good point to bring up another question that i had which is that so the book textually says that Mrs. Coulter wants the thing that Lyra is bringing to Lord Asriel. And it's done in the context of us thinking that it's referring to the alethiometer and Lyra thinking that it's referring to the alethiometer. And then only at the end do we find out that like, oh no, she wasn't bringing the alethiometer to Lord Asriel. She was bringing Roger. But does Mrs. Coulter want Roger? Like what does... Mrs. Coulter wants Lyra. Yeah, I think she wants to stop 
Asriel, so she wants the thing that he wants, you know, in order to make sure that he doesn't do his thing. Like, it's just a blocking motion. It's not that she wants it for... It's not that... I mean, she already had Roger, in a way, because... Right. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it it strikes me as one of those situations where it's like, you're, like, kind of lying to the reader, and it's okay as long as everything still makes sense when you go back and know what the real answer is, and I'm not sure if it makes, like, 100% of sense, looking back. Um, do you happen to have the line? <sighs> um... I, I, like, do we, was the, I don't remember exactly what you're talking about. Was it a line from Lyra's perspective? Was it Lyra thinking that? Was it the alethiometer? I think the alethiometer said it. Oh, yeah. Okay, I found it. Okay. The play of symbols, once she had discovered the pattern of it, was dismaying. It says she's heard about us flying this way, and she's got a transport zeppelin that's armed with machine guns. And they're flying to Svalbard right now. She don't know yet about Jofra Ragnarsson being beaten, of course, but she will soon because some witches will tell her and they'll learn it from the cliff gasks. Okay, I'm skipping ahead. As soon as she can, she's going to where Lord Asriel's kept prisoner and she's intending to have him killed because it's becoming clear now. Something I never understood before, Yorick. It's why she wants to kill Lord Asriel. Oh, it's because she knows what he's going to do and she fears it. She wants to do it herself and gain control before he does. And now it's telling me something else. She bent over the instrument, concentrating furiously as the needle darted this way and that. It moved almost too fast to follow. Roger, looking over her shoulder, couldn't even see it stop. Um, yes, I see what it says. She's after me again. She wants something I've got because Lord Azrael wants it too. They need it for this experiment, whatever it is. I guess, no, so that does kind of work, right? I think you're right. It is the blocking motion. She, the only reason why she wants... Roger, if you're taking that like super specifically, is because Lord Asriel wants it. Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah. And she's trying to control the dust thing. Okay, I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible, like, like I don't even know if at that point Mrs. Coulter had any idea that Lyra and Roger were together. Yeah, so it's you know, just like, like the I don't th- the energy of the kid bond to break open yeah. the thing. She's just like I don't yeah. think Mrs. Coulter has any clue who the fuck Roger is, right? And doesn't give two shits. Yeah, she might think yeah. that he's gonna kill Lyra um, to do this, and that. Yeah, see, that was just me being strangely literal and overinterpreting everything. <laughs> uh-huh, do they uh-huh. do they care about the exact same MacGuffin? It's like you know, she's basically like Azriel's um, antagonist. And yeah, and so she's just blocking. She's trying to block that motion, but it doesn't work. And then, you know, Lyra accidentally delivers Roger um, to him. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't she's this whole thing was about protecting him and saving him. And instead, she like killed him or she didn't do it. But you know what I mean? So like, I don't know. Like, there's no there's no way that Pullman is not. Uh, alluding to the story of Abraham and Isaac and alluding to the injustice that is like encoded into that story. But I've, I wanted to let people know that like that injustice is purposely there, but it it was there because the people at the time who told that story were telling it as like a cathartic, you know, um, story to themselves. They, you know, our God cares about people and not about, human blood sacrifices the way that everyone around us cares about that but that message has become lost as we've lost the context of 
what that story means. And it's not that the story doesn't mean what Pullman is saying that it means, because it definitely does mean that to Christians. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that is how they interpret it. And they interpret, you know, God has given you everything. You need to give everything back to him. And if that means your child needs to go to a gay deprogramming camp, then that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And I don't care how much you love that kid or how much it breaks their heart because you know, God gave you that child. And so you get some very dark and terrible things that come out of that kind of thinking. And that's exactly how this ending goes. Some dark and terrible stuff happens to a child. Fun times. (laughs) Yep. And then Pan and Lyra literally ascend to heaven. So Does that happen a lot in the Bible? I actually don't know. It happens a couple of times. The ending's really good if you've never gotten to the end of the Bible. There's a lot of people go to heaven in that part. Yeah. Actually, heaven comes down to earth. Spoilers. Maybe we should make a Bible podcast. No, that's a terrible idea. There's a lot of those. This is competition, man. (laughs) I feel like we would do it differently, but, you know. Uh, You have me burn up on mic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Please stop screaming. We're trying to talk about it. Yeah. I'd never actually thought about that being them ascending into heaven, which seems stupid now that you pointed out, because they do literally walk into the sky. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I had never thought of it that way. Because they're like in the night and they walk into the light. Yeah. It, it's very obvious now that you... <laughs> yep. It's very obvious now that you say that. Anything else we want to talk about? We have a lot of stuff, right? I know. I was going to say, I say as I scroll down to this huge page of notes that we've all made. I mean, to be fair, at least 30% of it is just one large quote that I pulled. And some of it we've already brought up. So, yeah. okay, before we get into anything else, I'm going to start with mine. Because I think it's the most important. (laughs) What do we think dust is at this point? That's a good question. Because like factually, or or given to us in a factual manner, Asriel says that it is what makes the alethiometer work and that it is original sin. (laughs) And I just feel that these two sentences make no fucking sense when you put them next to each other. That's a good clue, right? That they're wrong about this. Or that (laughs) they're misunderstanding something. So... So I guess tied into this, I'm wondering, how do we think the alethiometer works? What what do we think is happening there? Why does it want to tell Lyra things? Yeah, there's a good bit with the alethiometer where it seems to like tell her like, hey, stop asking the same question over and over, please. I'm getting tired of answering yeah. that. And that like gives you like, okay, there's so either the machine itself like has a personality, like a this is like some kind of sarcastic Siri shit going on. Or she is like, you know, using some kind of magical telegraph or something. And she's talking to like someone out there who like knows what's up. And so like the hint that's, the, you know, like I think the alethiometer is tied to like some kind of person, you know, like the way that a Ouija board or something. It's basically like a, a thing. I didn't talk about divination at all, but that's basically what it is. It's like some kind of divination machine that will answer your questions like a spiritual medium would. Well, do you think it's dust that is controlling it? It might be the medium through which that transmission happens maybe i like i think that there's like if they're saying like dust is what makes your your um demon stop transforming then like i think that it has like some kind of ability to like form a stronger connection between you and your demon or something like that and like you know arrest like like it, it takes things that are in flux and like makes them more permanent or something like that and so like it's making this strong like connection between two people of over some kind of 
distance or something is what I'm saying. Like the, the spirit, like, you know, like a medium would or like a Ouija board would like you make a connection with some kind of spirit out there that I guess knows the truth or something and then like moves your hands on the Ouija board. So for that time, you're like connected to each other. And then, you know, whenever the ritual is over with, you're not connected anymore. Like a, like a voodoo spirit coming into your body and riding you for a while or something like that. Like there's something going into the alethiometer and making it happen. And then it comes back out. Uh, and then, so I'd say that it's like the dust is like facilitating that connection, the way that it connects you and your demon together to like become one form or something. That's what I, right. I don't really remember these books like super well, but like, so I'm not, it's, that's it's not like future knowledge or something. Right. It's interesting because like whatever is answering, if dust is helping it or whatever, whatever's answering is all knowing. Right. Like she can ask it anything about anything. It seems to be it right. Tell her. Yeah. So like, I, I'm just, how is it all knowing that I, I, even having finished the books, I'm still just like, how is it, how does it know everything? <laughs> And also there's that other side about dust being dark matter. Right. So there's the like scientific side of what dust is also. And that's interesting. It doesn't interact. I feel like my brain is too scientific to even contemplate answering this question. I like can't wrap my head around it. Around what dust is? Like given the information, like you feel like you don't have enough information or like it's too big of a thing? Or it's just like merging the scientific and the supernatural in a way that makes my head hurt. <laughs> Mm. And I like can't even like you're trying to make science sense of it and it's just not working. Yeah, no, it just doesn't. So I'm just yeah. like, like the only way that my brain can deal with it is just to be like, uh-huh, taking all of these things at face value and moving on. Right. Yeah, I would say there is a definitely in fantasy a trend of this throughout like the 80s and then it kind of like peaked in a big way in the 90s. And it's a little bit different now, like it's calmed down. But like fantasy writers were definitely like more interested in building like magical systems or like directly riffing off of like science stuff and then you know making it kind of like paranormal and magical in in different ways and like this fits in with that really well but it's like sometimes those metaphors get like a little once you dip into the science like you were talking about exothermic and endothermic like the metaphors get a little wobbly and maybe maybe it is Maybe it's not great to be a science expert and like try to, you just got to like, yeah, I'm doing a lot of whistling here. I sure am going mm -hmm. past that. <laughs> that was my thing that I wanted to bring up. And I'm probably going to keep asking as we keep reading. And hopefully I'll eventually have an answer. Hopefully one of us will at any rate. Okay. So I put in the notes here that the golden monkey never got a name. And apparently this is news to yeah, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I definitely noticed they were calling it a monkey all the time, but like, how does it not have a name? Yeah. Nowhere in these books, in all, any of the three books, does the golden monkey ever get a name. Wow. Spoilers, sorry, but never has a name. There is either the stage production or a radio play or something gave the monkey a name, but they didn't consult Philip Pullman about that, and he's just kind of like, eh, about it. <laughs> so I think, canonically, the monkey does not have a name. Wow. What do you think that means? Like, Well, I think the monkey is creepier yeah. without a name. You know, he's just the golden monkey. But like, it's not, it's not that I think that demon does not have a name, although that would be really interesting because if it doesn't have a name, then that means its parents' demons didn't name it, which is what, right. what Philip Pullman says happens there. I wonder what happens with like orphans, you know, like, you know, if their father is not around and their mother dies in childbirth or whatever, 
I guess whoever's there would name the demon, or, or like whoever is there, their demon their would name demon the demon. Their demon would name it, yeah. 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 Um, so I get, but like it's possible nobody ever gave the golden monkey a demon, but we, we never find out. We, we get nothing. Huh. Yeah, I'll have to watch watch for that. I didn't, yeah, never even noticed that. I do, I have to say that like the, the demon names kind of slide off of me because it's like, it's a little bit like the um, Harry Potter spells. It's like, it's you know a demon name comes up it's like greekity greek greek and or like latiny latin latin you know i'm like yeah that's the name. right because ratter was really well yeah it's a good point counterpoint true but uh, uh that was just something i wanted to bring up that the golden monkey never got a name in this book and i presume it's because it keeps some kind of creepy and mysterious yeah no definitely yeah that that monkey is scary man like yeah the way that the the difference between those two where she will be like icy and controlled and then uh and then the monkey is just being wild and can't control itself you we don't have anywhere in here speaking of all that uh of the um demon sex moment oh yeah <laughs> i mean they weren't having sex well but... you know like it was weird though right they're like the demons are like tangled up together and there's some weird violence but um but not and the like the like submission and dominance mm-hmm. of the humans is kind of like being weirdly mirrored in the submission and the dominance of the demons for the most part. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question a bit about demons and what they do during sex? At least you, you know you can imagine. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to imagine. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean let's picture it graphically in our head. Yeah. And then you at least get the idea. Well, and in the same way that demons are like metaphorical extensions of our soul, it's like a metaphorical extension of sex. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. Exactly. It made that whole scene weirder than it already was. Yeah, actually. <laughs> I think it makes it so interesting. I felt like the dialogue between Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel in this section was like the only part of the book that felt super cheesy and like really pulled me out of it and that I didn't like. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I was just in a weird mood while I was reading it, but yeah, I like didn't buy it. It felt like very soap opera-y. Mm-hmm. I found that part to be like maybe something that would be really familiar to like modern kids who have been through like their parents getting a divorce and like just like the passionate way your parents can crash into each other in front of you sometimes where you're just like a spectator to their drama. And it's like you'll just sit there and like the stuff they say to each other and the way that they will like discuss you in front of you is like weird and and felt that is like the energy of that scene to me. But yeah, um, the dialogue itself might not have been great. I don't know. And I guess I just kind of felt like Mrs. Coulter was super out of character during that scene. Like she has been this like super like in control, motivated, competent character this whole time. And then like she finally gets in the same general areas lord asriel and just becomes a completely different person like goes weak in the knees it felt like super like stereotypical swooning woman kind of thing and like i guess maybe he he felt like he needed to go there in order to make like her saying no and refusing to go with him a weightier decision right Mm. because if she was like super in control the whole time then she wouldn't have been as tempted to go with him but I just, 
I think there would have been a way to write it such that she was tempted to go with him without what felt to me like character assassination at the end. No, I th- I think that's a really good point. That's a really strong point. Because I, I felt that way too on the initial reread before we started the podcast. I was like, this feels out of character. The The degree to which, has she been carrying a torch for him this whole time? And Yeah, like we just did not get that impression at all. Yeah. I don't, I kind of interpreted it a little differently. Like I don't necessarily disagree with you that it was very much like, like I, I don't I don't know if I think it's character assassination personally, but I understand what you're saying. Um, but for me, I always thought that they have a a, a past together, and we don't we don't know what that is mm. or what their relationship was. But I would presume that Lord Asriel is one of the few people that Mrs. Coulter is not able to manipulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, that's true. You know? And but I, I would feel- also assume that's part of why she likes him, or not like <laughs> is attracted sure. to him. Yeah. So I can see where maybe she just wouldn't even try in this scene because because presumably in the past she's tried, you know, she's gone down that route and found that it doesn't work with him. Right. And it's somebody who can like literally the way that that demon sex goes, it's like somebody who can dominate her. And maybe that's just like the thing that she is into, even though she doesn't always love it. Like she she loves it, but she doesn't love that she loves it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I feel like I would need to revisit that to come down. You're like slightly convincing me. The dialogue was still not great. Yeah, I'd have to. Yeah, I'd have to look at that dialogue. Man, I got to tell you, like my my emotions were riding so high every time that I got back to that point. I was just like the melodrama was like the right pitch for me. But I can see how, it, you know, like if you're not in that place, it's, you know, melodrama just doesn't work. Yeah. And I've always thought that the two of them were very drawn to one another, even if they don't necessarily work well together. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's possible that when they're together, it's just like, it's too much. Right. You know what I mean? Like, the, eh. they can't work together so, because who's in charge of this thing? Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. Sometimes I guess with certain people, maybe you just want to put the bullshit aside and have a conversation. But um, that doesn't sound like Mrs. Coulter, though. So. <laughs> Or Asriel, for that matter. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> you know... God, it's such a good thing Lyra wasn't actually raised by either of them. <laughs> yeah. The thing you just said about um, Mrs. Coulter and how she probably can't manipulate him was one of the things I wanted to talk about with Lyra, that she's never able to... Like, every other point in the book, she's able to lie to somebody, and it and it works. Like, every single time, it works. Uh, in the mm-hmm. book, but not with Asriel at the beginning when she tries to lie to him, uh, he catches her and he's like, yeah, well, I know that you're full of shit because of X, Y, Z. And she's like, Rrr. and here at the end, she- Sorry, they're English. You mean X, Y, Z. Oh, I refuse <laughs> to say that letter. I can't do that. I'm too American to to. I refuse to say it your way, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she tries to tell him the truth here at the end and even that doesn't work like she can't get him to you know she can't manipulate him into um doing what she wants like she can't win against him and i think this is actually really important for her final decision and like the place that she comes to like emotionally and intellectually because otherwise it's all been about like getting like achieving her goal every time that she's lied to people or told them the truth if she absolutely has to. And 
And with Asriel, it's not about that anymore because she can't win. And so she does, you know, she comes to the conclusion that she comes to and she tries to save Roger because it's the right thing to do according to her own conscience and according to like the way that she's come to see the world there at the end. Uh, it's not because of like, I, I need to win this situation or something. It's- I also think uh, like everything else in the book, Lyra said, I'm going to do this thing. And then she does it like, I'm going to rescue my dad. And she does that. I'm going to rescue the kids from Balvanger. And she does that. I'm going to go north. And she does that. And then, but one of the things that she said early was, I'm going to rescue Roger. And she super doesn't she do fails. it. She fails. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. It's super important. And I, uh, just not, not, not a spoiler, but I've heard a lot of criticism on, because Lyra changes a lot between this book and the next book. I mean, she's also not the main character in the next mm-hmm. book, um, but she's very different in the next book. And I, a lot of people criticize that, but I just think it makes so much sense because she just had this big failure, like the one thing more than anything else that she wanted to do. And she failed to do it to a, like a disaster degree so much so that she thinks she was responsible for her friend's death. Yeah. It's like the, the goal of the book is to save Roger and she completely fails. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. It's, um, it's one of those things that like going back to reading this from a writing craft perspective, I kept thinking this on the reread of like, you know, this is not good craft that, Every time she tells a lie, it doesn't make the situation more complicated or like, you know, cause like a left hand turn in the plot. It just goes exactly according to her plan. And that's not you shouldn't write like that. Like, that's not the way that any writing teacher would tell you to write. But he does it on purpose to get to this moment, to get Lyra to this place where she fails in the end. And that is like the whole point of everything that has happened before this. And that's really important because it's not that cook, cookie cutter children's story where everything turns out okay in the end. It's real life. It's postmodern ethics. It's, you know, the world that we actually live in where things don't turn out the way you want them to. And like the story of her, of like the specific plot line of her lies isn't over yet. Mm-hmm. So even if they've worked out so well for her in this book, that doesn't necessarily mean that's where it's going. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't, right? But if, for this book, I think it's the perfect choice. And it makes it so fun to read. Yeah, yeah. And it's like this great escape and this fantasy of like, I, I wish that I was her. I was so smart as her. You know, she can get out of any situation. But then at the end, it's like, mm-hmm. ooh. And it's, not, and, and it's not like a moral lesson of like, this happened because you lied. That's not what happened at all. It's not trying to like, you know, say that she did the wrong thing at any point. She did the right thing and it didn't matter. And like, that is like a huge lesson. Yeah. Should I go on my thing next? Yeah, or yes. You- it's really hard for me not to talk about future stuff. So let's just move on. <laughs> okay. So speaking of writing craft, one of the things that I wanted to touch on in this section and that I kind of thought about putting as my favorite thing was basically that Pullman has to come up with some sort of conceit to get it so that Lyra doesn't use the alethiometer because otherwise, like, the whole thing wouldn't work. She would just know about Azrael's plan and she wouldn't, like, walk into that situation. And so, like, on some level, Pullman 
did something that like shouldn't work, which was he has a protagonist who's one of her powers is that she's like should literally be omniscient because she should be able to ask the universe what's about to happen, what all her enemies are up to and get that answer. And so he had to come up with some sort of plausible reason for her not to consult the alethiometer. And we kind of talked about this earlier when she misinterprets the alethiometer and what it's telling her, I think, like, of with the spybot stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of like another way to accomplish the same thing. And so what Pullman does is he gets Roger to basically convince Lyra not to. He, like, appeals to her emotional side talking about how um you know how like ever since the gobblers came to oxford everything's been bad right now things are really nice they have like a warm towel they just took a bath you know and then he says there's been terrible things we've seen out there and more coming more than likely so i think i'd rather not know what's in the future i'll stick to the present yeah lyra said wearily there's times that i feel like that too So although she held the alethiometer in her hands for a little longer, it was only for comfort. She didn't turn the wheels, and the swinging of the needle passed her by. Pantaliman watched it in silence. And I just thought that it was, like, kind of a tricky thing that he pulled off pretty well. It's interesting that you say that she should be omniscient, because we were just talking about how we don't know what's answering through the alethiometer. So it's possible that, like we've seen in the past that it wants her to pay attention to certain things, like when it tells her, you know, stop asking me that, do this instead. Mm -hmm. So whatever's answering has a motivation. Right, yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's possible that even had she asked, like it's possible that whatever is answering her on the other side of the alethiometer wanted Roger to be sacrificed. Mm -hmm. Because it never warned her about it, because we've seen it warn her about things that she hasn't asked about in the past. I like I agree that that was well done also but I think even if she had asked I I truly think it not that it would have lied but it would have been cagey about it. Yeah, no that's that's a fair point. But I yeah, I don't know. Like what's moving the alethiometer is very mysterious at this point, but it hasn't actually lied to her yet that we know mm-hmm. about. And so I think it would have just given a very different tone. Yeah, and, and been a very different world-building choice. Yeah, so I guess for the world building, still very good that that he did uh, miss it so so well so well. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it makes that scene like very bittersweet on rereads, right? Where you're just yeah, because like, oh, you know that like just do it. Yeah, Roger, in a way, like I mean, not to be all victim blaming, but he like kind of started the sequence events or like prevented a sequence of events that could have prevented his death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's really good. Like, that's, this whole thing is like the right choice in both ways to like preserve the integrity of the plot, like you're saying, and then also like it's done in a way that when you come back to it, when you're like, okay, book two's out, now I'm going to reread this one and you get to this point, you're like, oh, Roger, why? Why didn't you just do it's it? It's also, yeah, it's his his sort of, mini monologue here about not wanting to think too far into the future. It's just like a nice final line, mm-hmm. I guess. Because it is the last thing he says other than screaming Lyra's name a couple times. <laughs> right. Um so it's it's just a nice way for his character to to end. Poor Roger. I keep wondering if we're gonna get more of him in the show. Because there's like there's a part where like the they're 
thing like crashes and he goes on like a mini adventure with Lee and stuff. The first episode is called Roger. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I assume we'll get enough that we care about him. Yeah. yeah. We're paying this kid. We might as well use it. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to go to all the trouble to find a child actor who can act, you might as well let him do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, though, that, you know, that writing craft there is delicate and he does a good job, like, preserving the alethiometer and what it does. And yeah, it's good. So we talked about Narnia a little bit at the beginning. We haven't really been talking about it too much but this whole thing with the at the end here and um you know the the link between the demons and puberty just brings to mind this uh part of narnian lore that like when you get too old in the narnia books you you like you can't go to narnia anymore only children human children go there uh and and in the story the way that narnia the last book is like set up all of the children who have gone there, even though they are too old to go to Narnia now, end up going back, except for one of them, uh, which is the the girl Susan, the oldest um, girl from the original book. And um, the reason, well, there's multiple possible reasons, but the primary reason seems to be that um, she's too interested in boys and in uh, lipstick and stockings and um sex basically she discovered sex and um and therefore like she views narnia as like a fantasy that they all shared and but wasn't real in any material way and this has become like there's a short story by neil gaiman called the problem of susan and it, and it has literally become like a a topic in fantasy and the study of fantasy the problem of susan this idea that like sexual maturity and all of this stuff like interferes with your ability to be a child and fantasize and like indulge in fantasy, like capital F fantasy and was a motivating factor for Pullman to write these books and like is explored here a little bit in, in the end, I think with Lyra and, and part of her awakening. And like, there's this whole thing here of like them taking a bath together and being a little bit weirded out about it. It's not sexual at all, but like, this idea that she is growing up and she's not a child like she used to be with him um, and the stakes are getting higher and he dies and stuff. And so, in the, you know, like I said, puberty is like deeply encoded into this idea, too, of in the books with the demons and their ability to change and with the dust and original sin. And it's all like very heavy. And, and I think Pullman like very neatly pulls in this criticism of Narnia and awakening to your sexuality and growing up and how that's not a bad thing. You know, the way that Lyra comes to that conclusion at the end that maybe dust isn't a bad thing. Like they all say it is because look at their behavior and how evil they all are. And I think that's his view of the situation that unfolds with Susan and the way that she's judged in that series. I can't say anything without either just getting like deep into Narnia discussion, which that's not what this podcast is, or talking about future yeah. stuff in the series. So, yeah. Just laying that that's, out that's there for people. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good point. Yeah, I agree. It's a really good point, and I'm glad you brought it up. And I, yeah, I've heard some of that criticism before, but I wasn't really thinking about it in the context of this book. So I'm glad you brought that up. Have you read all the Narnia books? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I mean, actually, so 
my mom read them to me when I was a kid. I've never read them myself. Um, And yeah, so I don't think I've read them since I was like probably nine or ten or something. Or I don't know. I mean, like at that point, my memory is pretty hazy for time periods. I think reading them, you could totally miss this Susan thing, especially if you're a kid. But when you're a grown up and you're and you're rereading it, you're like, whoa, that's like, what? (laughs) That's weird. I read the series, the Narnia series when I was 13 ish and I read Mm -hmm. them myself. And I just remember thinking, Susan's going to have the shittiest life ever. Mm, Yeah. Because do we care about Narnia spoilers on our podcast? I mean, big spoilers for big spoilers. Why her parents and her siblings all die and she's left alone. Right. In a train crash, they all die. And like, that's all I, I don't remember even thinking about it, thinking about why she wasn't on the train or why she, you know, why she wasn't going with them to all these things. I didn't even care about that. I just remember thinking, she is fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is the worst. Yeah. And then her brother is like, ah, she didn't have the faith anyway. She couldn't. Well, have- at that point, it's, they were dead, so I think... I know, but it's like it <laughs> messed up. It's like they all went no, to heaven, and they're like, yeah, she couldn't get in, big deal, you know? Well, she couldn't get in because she didn't die. Like, I I think she will join them there later. That's yeah, how I'm, I've always personal. Like, she's going to have a shitty life now, though, because she just lost her entire family in one go, just a couple of years after World War II ended. Yeah. Like, oh, we all made it through the Blitz and the war. <laughs> Train crash. <laughs> Fuck, sorry, this Oops. is I didn't want to get into this, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. But you're right. He doesn't ever conclude her story. And he and he even said that like I don't know how her story ends. Like he encouraged people, like, if you think if you think you know the ending, like write it. That's great. Go do that. To people who wrote him letters about it and stuff. But yeah, it's it's just a thing in fantasy that has animated different authors and definitely was an influence on Pullman. Yeah. So. It's absolutely an interesting thing to talk about, especially the way that he he worded he worded it from it was like Peter who talked about her, I think, from his perspective. Peter Edmund, one of the boys. Yeah, it would have been interesting to hear what one of the girls would have said about her. But right. (laughs) But obviously we don't get that. Yeah. Oh, actually, I do want to talk about this uh, epigraph thing. I forgot I put that in there. It's not the, the lantern slides. The what? The what? There's like a whole thing about lantern slides at the end of the book. Oh, I don't mean the end. I'm talking about the thing of like uh, his dark materials, uh, blah, 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 blah. The God created the universe and the devil stood there. And... Oh, OK. So at the, at the end of the chapter, it says lantern slides, the golden compass. Sometimes it becomes possible for an author to revisit a story and play with it, not to adapt it to another medium. It's not always a good idea for the original author to do that, nor to revise or improve it. Tempting, though, that is, it's too late. You should have done it before it was published, and your business is now with new books, not old ones, but simply to play. And in every narrative, there are gaps. Places where, although things happened and characters spoke and acted and lived their lives, the story says nothing about them. It was fun to visit a few of these gaps and speculate a little on what I might see there. As for why I call these little pieces lantern slides... It's because I remember the wooden boxes my grandfather used to have, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so it's just like a collection of little paragraphs. It's like he wrote his own fan fiction. Oh, right. Okay, yes. On the newer editions, um, he did do that. May I just say, as like a PSA out there, anybody who hasn't read the books, do not look at the most current cover of the third book 
because it is a huge fucking spoiler. Oh, oh. my God. Oh. It, I don't understand why they did that. I, it's, it's, an, it's like literally the very end of the book. Oh, which man. is the very end of this series. And why? <laughs> what a I, stupid choice. I don't know, but I like the noises it makes you make. <laughs> I guess I can see where if you're not. No, because if you know the plot at all, you would interpret it to mean what it means. Ugh, sorry. It upsets me so much. It's, 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 really, it's really pretty. And whoever drew it, great, great art. But fuck. Weird marketing <laughs> choice. <laughs> but yeah, in those editions of the book, he's added some extra little things. It's cool that they're separate. Yeah. It's, like you said, instead of putting them back in. Um, I did notice the ending here um, very closely mirrors the um, little piece that we get from uh, Paradise Lost poem, where they're, they're like, you know, they're up on this cliff and the auroras all around them the same way that when it's talking about, you know, Satan was standing on this cliff edge with like the dark materials, chaos kind of swirling all around um, and on the edge of whole new worlds that could be made. And then, you know, he opens up the portal to a new world and they ascend into this, you know, kind of heavenly thing. It's like it's all it just comes right back around in a in a structural way that is like interesting. You can tell that like maybe he read that part of the poem when he was trying to like construct his world and was like, ooh, that's the I want to write that scene, you know, in in my story. And he has like Asriel as the, you know, satanic kind of character standing on the edge of the universe, walking into new worlds and stuff right there at the end. So I thought that was pretty cool. But even at one point, like Lyra looks up and says that it looks like Azriel is controlling the um the Aurora. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good ending. It's so good. Like Yeah, it's fabulous. That's why I chose it. So thanks for joining us. Uh that's all we have for today. And our next official episode is going to be about the first episode of the TV show, which is very exciting. Yay. Um, and so we might have some bonus episodes between now and then, um, but we don't exactly know what those will be about or when they'll be dropping. So just keep an eye on the feed, I suppose. If you like the show, take some time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. And don't forget to accidentally sacrifice your best friend for the good of the plot. Oh.